Well, if you've been with us for any length of time, you know that we've been steadily working our way through the Gospel of John. There are 21 chapters in this book, and today we launch into the last one. Chapter 21 is somewhat of an epilogue to John's Gospel because for all intents and purposes, the closing verses of chapter 20 seem to wrap things up very well. The previous two chapters have dealt with Christ's crucifixion and His resurrection, how Jesus died as atonement for our sins and rose from the grave to give hope and new life to all who entrust themselves to Him. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is obviously central to the Christian faith, but for those who were present at the time, it took some time for the reality of these events to sink into their hearts and grab hold of their lives. While we have the benefit of over 2,000 years of Christian history and, and compelling evidence, they were piecing it together in real time as it was unfolding. And as we saw last week in the encounter between Jesus and Thomas, not everyone believed at first, not even those closest to Christ. But sometimes the very real struggle for faith is what strengthens faith. And thus, after meeting the resurrected Jesus, Thomas gave voice to his saving faith when he said of Christ, my Lord and my God. John's entire purpose in writing this book is that all who read it would make a similar confession. That's what he says in the last verse of chapter 20. He wrote, So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. What a fitting way to end. By ending with a call to faith. So why another chapter? If chapter 20 wraps things up so nicely, what's the point of chapter 21? And my answer to that is that there is no obvious point. At least, not a spectacular one. And that itself is the point. There's no monumental event like the crucifixion or resurrection. Instead, this final chapter provides just one more look into what a relationship with Jesus entails. What we find here is everyday grace. And the point is simply this. As Lord and God... Jesus Christ is intimately involved with our everyday lives, with life at every level. So the chapter divides nicely into three parts. This morning, I want to consider part one together. Let's read it. John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. 
After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That's another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night... They caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved That's John. Therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful and we're thankful for the opportunity to again gather as your people and hear from your word. We're we're expectant. We anticipate your voice this morning. We need to hear your voice this morning. We want to hear your voice this morning. We thank you for the many ways that you have revealed Jesus to us through the course of our study through the Gospel of John. Some of them in spectacular fashion. We've seen miracle after miracle. We've watched these life-changing encounters. We've witnessed the incarnation, the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And in many ways, it has taken our breath away. And now we come to this final chapter in John's gospel, Lord, and it seems so very ordinary, which I take to mean that it is so very real. So I pray that today, in the midst of our very ordinary lives, that you would speak your truth to us again and reveal to our hearts the goodness and wonder of your Son 
our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. The section begins and ends with a similar thought. One that concerns the revelation of Christ. Verse 1 sets the stage by introducing how Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples, while verse 14 notes that this was now the third time he'd done so since his resurrection from the dead. Like bookends, these two verses provide structure that undergirds the point being made, specifically how Jesus graciously discloses himself to us and how dependent we are on his grace each day. I want to explore the passage by exploring the words of Christ as they're represented here. In these 14 verses, Jesus speaks four times. Each time he reveals something about himself and the heart of God that pertains to our everyday lives. And the first saying is found in verse 5, when Jesus asks children, do you have any fish? The disciples, seven of them, had been fishing all night long. But for hours on end, theirs was an effort in futility. They had nothing to show for their labor, but as day was dawning, Jesus arrived and asked if they'd caught anything, to which they replied no. And that he called them children is worth noting. You know, the NIV uses the word friends. The, uh, I think it's the Holman Christian Standard Bible uses the word um, men. While the King James and the New American Standard and the ESV all say children, which in fact is the literal translation of the original language, the word is a tender one. It's very endearing. It focuses not on a person's age, but on the relationship shared. With this word, Jesus is conveying his love for them and his genuine interest in their well-being. The word children suggests that he's there to care for them like a father. That Jesus went to them in this way speaks to the presence of God in our lives. That he took interest in their well-being is a window into the heart of God. And that they did not recognize him at first reminds us that God cares for us, takes interest in us, and is with us even when we don't realize it. There are times in life, aren't there? There are times in life when God, who is all-wise and knows the end from the beginning, chooses to not reveal everything at once. We want the whole picture up front, but God typically chooses to reveal it piece by piece. We want to see the whole path from the start But what I've found and what others have told me is God tends to reveal it one step at a time. I remember how after coming to Christ, I could look back and see God's involvement in my life all along, though I didn't realize it at the time. 
I could see how he was involved when I was just a boy who occasionally attended Awana with my friend at his church. I could see, though I didn't grow up going to church, I can look back and see how God was involved. I have vivid memories of this day. When my mom took me and my sister to an Easter Sunday service, I can look back and see how God was involved when our family moved next door to some neighbors who opened their home and their hearts to us, which proved instrumental in how we came to know Jesus for ourselves. I can see how God was involved in my life long before I was a Christian. In high school, when my close friends began partying, And sleeping around, there was something in me that held me back from joining in with them. I was not a believer at the time, but I believe it was God protecting me from all that hurt and heartache while preserving me for my future wife. I can see how God was involved long before I became a pastor. At work, when I schlepped boxes at UPS or bagged groceries at Rayleigh's, or sold metalworking equipment to machinists and fabricators who were more than twice my age, I can now see God's involvement. Like David, when he was but a shepherd boy, there were lessons I needed to learn and character that needed to be developed. Though I didn't know it at the time, God was preparing me for what was coming. I can now see how God was involved in my life before I was a father. Looking back, I can now see how God was there when Sally and I could not conceive children. How he was present. When our attempts at adoption fell through in heartbreaking ways. How he took interest in our well-being as we rode that emotional roller coaster that I would not wish upon anyone. And yet now, over 20 years later, we have five kids. And each of them is a beautiful testament to God's amazing grace. And I can testify, church, that God's ways are higher than ours and that His timing is always spot on. And you have similar stories. I'm sure you can look back over the years and see how involved God was though you didn't know it at the time. How present he was. How loving he was and is. We can look back and see such evidences of grace because God in his perfect wisdom chooses to not reveal everything at once. And the flip side of this church, the flip side of this, of course, hear this, is that God 
is involved in your life right now today in ways you probably can't see. You may not even recognize him just as the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus at first, but be assured he is there He is assessing your need as He did theirs. You may not see it now, but at some point in the future, you'll look back on this season in your life and know that God was present and was leading you through. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, He said to them, and you'll find some fish. And if the first statement speaks to God's presence, this one emphasizes His guidance and direction, and that the disciples did as Jesus instructed, touches on the importance of listening to God and obeying Him who is faithful. They could have offered any number of reasons why not to obey, couldn't they? I mean, they were experienced fishermen, after all, who knew what they were doing. Who is this guy to tell us how and where and when to fish? They could have retorted to one another. In fact, in fact, they'd probably fished the exact same spot where Jesus was now telling them to cast. I mean, one would have to assume that in the course of a whole night of fishing, certainly they'd fished on both sides of the boat already and had moved around from spot to spot. They were tired. They were probably frustrated or at least disappointed. And so I'm sure they could have found more than a few reasons to not listen to what Jesus was saying. But they listened. They were teachable. And this is applicable. The takeaway here is that the benefit of God's guidance is only realized when we obey His instruction. The benefit of God's guidance is only realized when we obey His instruction. Who are we? Who are we to go our own way, then blame God for the outcome? We get ourselves into trouble most often, not because we don't know what to do, but because we don't listen to what God has told us to do. And so we must cultivate a teachable spirit that's attuned to the voice of truth. Jesus assessed their need with a question. Children, do you have any fish? And then he addressed their need by instructing them on what to do. Cast here and not there. And I want you to notice that they weren't partaking in what we might call a religious activity or some so-called spiritual endeavor. They weren't. 
They were simply fishing. They were fishermen by trade, which reveals how God speaks into, their, in, into our lives at every level. You know, we tend to separate the sacred from the secular, thinking that certain parts of our lives or certain parts of our day are more spiritual than others. But with God, there is no such distinction. With God, all of life is sacred, even our secular interactions. That Jesus engaged them in their work affirms that our jobs have meaning and value, that God cares about our places of work as well as the work itself. For those in school, for our students, (coughs) excuse me, school is your work. You're there every day, five days a week, and you need to know that God cares about that. He cares about your school. He cares about your school work. He cares about you as you do the work. Among other things, this great haul of fish shows that God wants to bless the work of our hands and give us satisfaction in what we do as we trust and obey Him which leads to greater acknowledgement of His gracious involvement in our lives. I want you to consider the effect this had on the disciples. You know, they weren't celebrating the fish, notice, but Jesus who provided the fish. And seeing the net filled to capacity and then some, John, putting two and two together, says to Peter, it's the Lord. In other words, the provision points to the provider, And Peter, in typical Peter fashion, plunges into the water and begins swimming to shore. Listen, at that moment, he's not thinking about fish. The provision itself, the fish weren't the point, but only pointed to something better, to someone better. At that moment, Peter was thinking only of the Lord and how quickly he could get to the Lord. And the others were thinking the same. Peter's swimming while they come in the boat, dragging the net behind them. And when they got out on land, verse 9, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've just caught. And so if the second statement shows how God takes interest in our work, follow follow me with this. If the second statement shows how God takes interest in our work, I think this third one reveals how He involves us in His work. All right, let's consider this. Is there any doubt that Jesus has breakfast covered? And there are fish cooking over the open fire. Bread to go along with. By the way, this is just an amazing scene. And yet he asks them to bring some fish anyway. And so we ask why. Well, I suppose, I suppose it's possible that he needed more. And maybe it is as simple as that. 
But I tend to think that Jesus doesn't need help stretching a meal. I mean, if he can feed 4,000 on one occasion and 5,000 more on another, all with just a few loaves and fishes, surely he could have fed these seven men without their contribution. So why does Jesus ask for their contribution? And I think it's because their participation mattered. Their involvement became an investment in the relationship. Does Jesus need our help to accomplish His purposes? No. He lacks, not the wisdom, he, he lacks not the wisdom to know what's needed, nor the power to get it done. In fact, I think the great hall of fish provides a perfect picture of salvation itself. That it's not by our strength or might, by our works, but by God's grace. And yet, in the same vein, though we are not saved by works, we're certainly saved for works. As Ephesians 2.10 puts it, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works, which God has prepared for us that we should walk in them. Now, an obvious example to, of this dynamic is our participation in witnessing and evangelism. Now, listen, Jesus does not need our witness in order to free someone from their bondage to sin. But our involvement in the process is a relational investment into the life of another that testifies to our relationship with Christ. When we talk about Jesus with another person, we demonstrate just how meaningful He is to us and how important they are as well. So no, Jesus doesn't need our help to accomplish our, uh, His purposes, but He purposely involves us in the work. And that Jesus asked them to bring just some fish is helpful too. Because we need not confuse the matter by trying to do more than what God asks. Right? Sometimes we're guilty of that. Sometimes I'm guilty of that. We don't want to run out ahead of God or lag behind Him, but rather walk alongside Him as we do the good things He's prepared for us. So then even as he was preparing the meal for these men, I think he was preparing them for the meal. Which brings us to the fourth and final statement when in verse 12 Jesus says to them, Come and have breakfast. You know, as we near the end of the Gospel of John, 
This is one of my favorite statements in the entire book. And there have been some amazing things said in these 21 chapters. Do you remember how the book began? How John introduced us to Jesus? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I mean, with incredible clarity and depth of meaning, these are among the most powerful words in the entire Bible. Words that speak to the eternality of Christ. To the dual nature of the incarnation that Jesus is is both fully divine and fully human. And then just two chapters later, we come upon what is likely the most recognizable, most quoted verse in the entire Bible. You know it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know, you can look far and wide, but you will not find words of greater hope and promise than these. Or think of the unparalleled I am statements contained throughout the John's Gospel. When Jesus says, in chapter 6, for example, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever th- believes in me shall never thirst. Or this one in chapter 8. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Or these in chapter 10. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Or this one in chapter 11. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Or this one in chapter 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then finally we have this one, the seventh and and, and final I am statement. When Jesus says in chapter 15, I am the true Vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, each of these statements speaks to how Jesus saves and satisfies the soul. Each of them is an amazing, amazing statement that just Uh, uh, really touches the depths of our being, but as great as they are, 
And as great as John 3.16 is, and as great as the opening prologue is, and each of these is great for sure, I find, I find, chapter 21, verse 12, to be equally great and awe-inspiring, that Jesus invited them to come and have breakfast, reveals how He invites us to enjoy an everyday relationship with God. Can you think of a more endearing gesture than the simple call to enjoy breakfast with Jesus? This is so extraordinary if for no other reason that it's so very ordinary. It's so everyday. It's as routine and uncomplicated as a morning meal. I don't know about you, but I confess that it's rare that I have breakfast. I don't typically eat breakfast. Not because I don't enjoy it. I do very much. In fact, in our home, we sometimes have breakfast for dinner. And we call it Brenner. <laughs> and it's always a big hit. But the reason I don't always eat breakfast is because I don't allow time in my morning for breakfast. I've chosen to let other things, some of them good and right things, to crowd my schedule and push breakfast aside. Though I may grab something on the go, it never really satisfies. And could it be that that's how some of us are treating our relationship with Jesus? As we gather in this place this morning, could it be that though we love the idea of Jesus, we've essentially chosen to let other things, some of them good, to crowd our schedules and clutter our minds and clog our hearts. We may grab some Jesus on the go, but as I'm sure you'd agree, that's not a relationship. You know, we're told in verse 14 that this was the third time that Jesus revealed himself to them after his resurrection. The first was the night of the resurrection itself. The second was the one week later, the following Sunday. This is now the third. And with each revelation of Christ, they responded favorably. And that's the essence of walking with Jesus, responding rightly to what He reveals, what He reveals about Himself, what He reveals about the world, what He reveals about others, and what He reveals about you. Perhaps the biggest reason, hear this church, why I love this statement, to come and have breakfast, 
is because it calls us to reflect on what's most important. To reflect on Christ and what He has revealed and respond accordingly by accepting the invitation into His everyday life the disciples were inviting Jesus into theirs. Now, if I had to boil down what it means to walk with God in relationship, that's it. It's entering into the life of Christ while inviting Him into yours. It's not always centered upon a spectacular event or something monumental, but rather it's the daily compilation of seemingly small moments that build something strong and everlasting. It's the enjoyment of everyday grace that comes by way of Christ who is intimately involved in our everyday lives. And so I must ask, church, what is Jesus revealing to you this morning? To you. And this time we've spent together, this time we've shared, what is He saying to you this morning? Not those in front of you or behind you or to the left or right, to you. In Jesus, we see the presence of God and how God directs the steps of our lives. We see the work of God and how He involves us in the work. We see in the invitation to a simple meal how God invites us to Himself. How will you respond? to what He has revealed to you this morning. Receive His love and grace. Receive Christ. Amen. God, in these moments of quiet, will you please just draw each one of us closer to yourself? Will you comfort those who are hurting? Will you supply assurance to those who are doubting? Please encourage those who are despairing. Please convict those who are pretending. Please reveal yourself to all who are seeking that we may find in Jesus the satisfaction our souls so desire. Do this, we pray, for the good of your people. 
and for the exaltation of your great name.